Matthew chapter 5. We are beginning a brand new series today, and it's going to be the theme for our year as a church, and it's going to be uh, the sermon series that we're on for a while. It's going to contain a lot of different sermon series throughout it, but it's going to be the theme for our year. I'm still getting a lot of feedback. And uh, what we're going to be talking about is um, a sermon series called Roots. Roots. We're going to be looking at many of the teachings of Jesus, his early teachings, and digging from them uh, what, not only what he wanted us to hear, but also what we need. I think that today in our day and age, in the place where we're at as Christians, as the church, uh, even as New Life Church, we're at a place where I think we need to be reminded of what this is all about. And not just what it's about, but what it's about for us on a personal level. And to make it more pointed, what he expects from us as we live our lives. So if you would turn to Matthew chapter 5 and stand with me as we read God's word this morning. Uh, this is our text for the next several weeks. Uh, the first sermon that we're going to be uh, going through. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5, beginning of verse 1, it says, When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecute the prophets who were before you. You may be seated. Now, in that one passage, those first 12 verses, man, there is a whole lot to talk about. A whole lot to unpack, as people say. A whole lot that we could dig into, and we're going to dig into. Those are called the Beatitudes. That is traditionally called the Beatitudes. And when I, I know we, it, they're, it's quoted, they're quoted in the media quite a bit, uh, especially the peacemaker part. Everybody wants to say blessed are the peacemakers. And that's and, and how Jesus expects us to be peacemakers. And that's wonderful. And I think that's great. And we're going to be talking about that. But the backbone or the spine of this teaching is not just this. The backbone and spine of this teaching is that this is what comes from a life lived according to the principles of Jesus Christ. Can I just make this observation? That is what is lacking in the church today. People living according to the word of God. Everybody wants to interpret the Bible the way they want to interpret it. Everybody wants to say what they want to say. Everybody wants to take the Bible and twist it to make it fit their their desired outcome in their lifestyle. But the fact of the matter is that's not how Jesus intended for us to take his word. 
During this series, we're going to be digging into many of the teachings of Jesus that we find in the Gospels. Now, I'm going to try to harmonize because many of these teachings are, are covered in multiple Gospels, either, you know, one, two, three, or four. Kind of harmonize them together so we get the full perspective of what Jesus was teaching. But what we're looking for here is the beginning te- in the beginning teachings of, Je- of Jesus is the foundation, the starting point that he laid out for us as followers of Jesus. My goal is that we, as individuals, as a church, will be rediscovering our roots. Rediscovering our roots. Rediscovering the basics, the foundational teachings of Jesus. Not what so-and-so said on his podcast. Not what so-and-so wrote in her book. What Jesus taught us. Because at the end of the day, that is what matters. Now our, servant, our, our, our starting point will be Matthew, chapter, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, which is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus preached it from a mountain. It's the first sermon that we have recorded of Jesus, and I believe it's an incredibly important sermon. And I believe it's important because it set the tone for not only his ministry, but also for the kind of lives that he was calling for his followers to live. Jesus will find as we go through his teachings, he wasn't reinforcing the strict do's and don'ts of the law. And that's what, the mo- that's what most of his congregation for this sermon was following in their lives. The strict do's and don'ts of the law. They were following the, the Mosaic law. Do it. They, were, they were trying to be good Jews, following the law, doing what the law said, doing what Moses laid out. And even going beyond that, because if you study uh, the history of the law and you study the history of Judaism before Christ, you'll find that the Levites, the priests, the leaders of the synagogue, not only clung to the law of Moses, they added to the law of Moses. And there were more and more, more and more, more and more and more and more laws that they added to the law to make sure that the people were locked down tight that they couldn't breathe without knowing that they were in sin. But Jesus, when he preaches this sermon and when he goes into his teachings, wasn't reinforcing the strict do's and don'ts of the law. This was revolutionary. When they talk about Jesus being a revolutionary, they don't talk, some people, you know, the Jews were looking for a man to release them and free them from the Romans. And that's the kind of revolutionary they wanted. Jesus wasn't that kind of revolutionary. Jesus revolutionized faith. Jesus revolutionized belief. Jesus revolutionized everything that has to do with an, an individual and their relationship with Jesus Christ, with the God of the universe, and how a person can be reunited with their creator. He was laying out a new way, a new covenant, a different way of living. In this teaching, Jesus was introducing a new way of living for God, the way of faith and not works. That's what Jesus is going to uh, truly lay down here, truly enforce 
and, and put out to the people. And that's why they were, those who were opposed to him were so opposed to his teaching. Because he said, yeah, it's, it's okay. I mean, it's good that you're doing these things. It's good to live a moral life. But your morality isn't, what gets, isn't what's going to reunite you with your, with your creator. You see, the law was based on the works of a human being. But now when Jesus came down and Jesus eventually would die for the sins of the world on the cross, he said it was no longer about what you do. It's about what I did. It's no longer about what you can accomplish. It's about what I finished. And now what you need to do is put your faith, not your works, your faith in my finished work on the cross being what will, what, what will pay the price for your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness and reunite yourself with the God of the universe. He was a revolutionary. Now, before, before people start, before anybody gets upset and says, well, wait a minute, wait, works are still going to be important. Works still will be important, but not for your relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible says that faith without works is dead. Faith is the way we prove, works are the way we prove our faith. That works are the outworking of what is going on on the inside. And quite honestly, human works empowered by the God of the universe are what builds his kingdom. Remember, we don't save anybody from their sins. We lead them to Jesus. And they have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And they confess their sins to him and ask him and receive the gift of eternal life. And he saves them from their sins. We are simply the conduit that connects the two. So works are important in our walk with Jesus Christ. But what Jesus was saying is the foundation is faith. What he's saying is that you're not going to build the kingdom by sitting around drinking coffee. You're not going to build the kingdom by sitting around having conversations and talking about what's going on in other places. You're going to build the kingdom by getting involved. You're going to build the kingdom of God by first keeping yourself close to him in a close relationship and then by reaching out through faith and through your works, reaching others for Jesus Christ. See, Jesus was telling us here, as we'll see, that he is now wanting to have a personal relationship with each one of us. And that personal relationship with Jesus that starts in our heart will now be ground zero for our faith. That is where it all begins. It would now be the measuring stick. And the personal relationship with Jesus Christ is not only the measuring stick for your walk with Jesus, it's also the check engine light for your walk with Jesus. When that check engine light, anybody, anybody brave enough to say that you would dr they're driving around with a check engine light on in their car? Yeah, 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 Yes. I have done that before, all right? And I have tried to get underneath and find the fuse that shuts off that check engine light because it's so annoying. Um, but what's that? Yes. Thank you, Jeremy, for, for, the, for that input. Appreciate that. Uh, I think all those lights that light up on the dashboard are just suggestions. 
but uh, our walk, our personal relationship with Jesus Christ is the check engine light for our relationship with the Savior. When, when you hear a sermon or you read a passage of Scripture and something pings in your heart and, and it kind of gets your attention, that's the Holy Spirit saying, hey, this needs your attention. This needs your, uh, your attention at this moment. You need to focus on this. We need to talk about this. We need to get something together. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing is giving us not just an early teaching. This, we're going to find as we go through this, this is a pretty strong sermon. It's a very strong sermon. This is not... I think, I think parts of it can be milk, but the Sermon on the Mount is the crux of what it means to live for Jesus Christ. The Sermon on the Mount tells us what healthy Christianity is. It tells us what functional Christianity is. It tells us what it truly looks like to live a life totally surrendered to, focused on, and in passionate synchronization with the plan of God for your life. As I said, this is the first recorded sermon of Jesus in his ministry. But by this time in his life, many things of note had already happened. And if you've read the story, if you've read the Gospels, if you read Matthew, you know a lot of the things that have happened in Jesus' life. But let's recap some of the highlights, shall we? Consider these major events that preceded this, this initial sermon. Not only was his birth prophesied centuries before, if you look in the Old Testament, you'll read prophecies of a coming Savior. That was the prophecies of Jesus' birth. Angels announced to his mother and earthly father that he would be born, and they even told him what his name was to be. A great chorus of angels announced his birth to a group of shepherds. Can you imagine that when you're out on, the, on, a, on a hillside, it's evening, and all of a sudden the sky is filled with beings you've never seen before? I mean, nowadays, I think it would be surprising, but there are people that would try to explain it away as it's just a, like a, a projection onto the clouds, right? This is 2,000 years ago. They didn't have smartphones. They didn't have any kind of, Lord knows they didn't have smartphones because it would be on YouTube by now, right? But this angelic chorus singing a heavenly song announcing the birth of the Savior. What was such a big deal in heaven was, so, was, was given to such a small group of individuals. Not only was his birth announced by a great chorus of angels, God created a new star to mark not only the day of his birth, but also the place of his birth. You know that as a child... He not only confused and confounded the leaders of the temple in Jerusalem as a 12-year-old boy, he taught them. He wasn't arguing about the law. He was teaching them the law. Why could he do that? Because he's the one that wrote it. He was the physical embodiment of the law. John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, lived among us. He was baptized by John, 
with the approval of the two other members of the Trinity, one of the only times we see all three members of the Trinity in the same place at the same time. God the Son, Jesus Christ, was being baptized while God the Father announced, this is my Son, I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit was there showing his approval in the form of a dove. And he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness after a 40-day fast. He began ministering by choosing his 12 apostles. And Matthew tells us right before this that he taught and healed every kind of sickness and disease as well as cast out many demons from many who were possessed. In fact, if you read the verses preceding Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 4, you'll read that the Bible says Jesus healed every sickness among them. Every one that was sick, Jesus healed. That's why when people talk about faith healers, I'm just, just going to make a statement here, okay? When people talk about faith healers and conferences and this and that, listen, man, if, if I, I'm, I'll lay out the challenge for anybody, all right? Not being arrogant. I'm just being honest here. If anybody thinks they have the faith that truly has the gift of faith healing where they can lay hands on and heal people, well, come here and I will take you down to the Shriners Children's Hospital and we will go up and down the hallways because those kids need healing, And if you have that gift, it's not about having a big crowd in a church where you could take an offering. Jesus just walked among the people and healed them. In fact, the Bible says at one time, a woman reached up and grabbed the hem of his robe and was healed. Jesus never asked for accolades. He never asked for the attention. Oh, he got it. He he got it. But Jesus always did the work of the Father when it was needed. All of this was in preparation for the short three-year period of his public earthly ministry. Have you ever thought about that? We spend so much time, and I mean, it's the basis of our lives and our ministry and our church. And it was just a three-year period that Jesus had an active ministry. Amazing what he accomplished in three years. As we begin to dig into the teachings of Jesus, I believe it's vitally important to know something about Jesus and something that is out there. And we'll be... one of the reasons that we're going to be going through this series is, is to teach what the Word says, but also when the opportunity arises to correct false teaching that's out there. There are teachings in some denominations, some churches, some popular pastors and speakers who are saying that Jesus had to come into his own Jesus had to come to understand. And all the time leading up to the 30 years and even into the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was discovering who he was because they want to humanize him just like us and take away his deity and say that he was just a human being, just a good man doing good works. Well, I'm here to tell you that Jesus knew who he was and what his mission was from the moment he was conceived in the Virgin Mary. He did not have to discover himself. He didn't have to have it occur to him that he had a special purpose. Jesus knew from the moment of his conception that he was God, that he was now on a mission to be human and to show us a better way and to die for the sins of humanity. He knew exactly who he was and what his mission was all that time. He chose to become human. He chose to be a baby. He chose to be a child, but he never chose to lay aside 
his godhood. He never chose to lay aside his power. He never chose to lay aside all of his knowledge and abilities, the great things that made him and continue to make him God. Jesus didn't have to learn anything. He didn't have to have it dawn on him. Now, as I, as I began studying for this series a while ago and reading and, and doing some research and reading some, what some other uh, authors have written about it and other pastors have preached about it, one thing that really uh, occurred to me about this sermon is this. I think it very interesting that Jesus preached this sermon at the time of his ministry. The very beginning. Listen, when we, when we have people that accept Jesus as their Savior, we take them through what is called a discipleship course, whether it's first steps or whatever, the, maybe you went through one in a church, um, whatever, whatever it was called, we take people through a discipleship course and we teach them the basics of their faith. Well, let me tell you, this is not a first, this is not a basic discipleship course. This is a strong message. This message, the Sermon on the Mount, contains some strong, strong truths. It contains some harsh lessons. It contains some very pointed, point blank and personal teachings from Jesus. Now, if it was up to us, maybe this kind of meat for teaching would best fit in at the end of his time on earth after his followers had been had spent time being taught in fact one of the things that we'll find is Jesus taught, gave a great teaching about his enemies about how to treat our enemies and how to interact with our enemies well it would seem to me that it might have a, a stronger impact if you were going through that to be taught how to how to handle it and allow people to ramp up to this level of teaching. Yet Jesus taught this at the beginning. Why did he do it? I believe that Jesus was setting the bar for service in his kingdom. I believe that Jesus was setting the bar for us and saying, this is what is expected of a follower of mine. We soft sell, and I'm going to be very blunt in this sermon, too, as I always am, but I'm going to be very blunt. We soft sell following Jesus nowadays. We try to make it too easy. And I'm not saying, please don't miss this. I'm not saying it's, it's harsh and it's hard and it has to be hard and we have to jump through hoops. That's not what I'm saying at all. But nowadays, when we come to a teaching that we don't like, we change the word of God to make it fit that point of life. And that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to... Uh, supposed to find out what the Bible has to say, accept it as truth, and adjust ourselves to the word of God. Jesus was telling th these people and us right up front what was going to be expected of them, what they would be expected to grow into. Jesus didn't dive into deep doctrine in this message, what we sometimes focus our study and growth on. He didn't dig into church polity or political activism. He covered topics that dealt with personal character, with relationships of many kind. That's going to be a recurring 
theme throughout this sermon. Different relationships with different people and different people in different walks of life and different aspects and areas of our life and our relationship with him. Commitment to him and to others. Relating to those with whom we disagree, our enemies. And that's, uh, let me tell you, man, that is, some, that is something that the church needs. Listen, <sighs> say this kindly and politely. We want to try to get the world, those who are outside of faith, we want them to try to, tr- we want to get them to try to change them, their thinking and change their ways to appease us and to fall in line with us. That's never going to happen. The Bible says the things of God are spiritually discerned and you must be a child of his. You must have accepted him as your savior to truly understand the deep teaching and meaning and, and the purpose of the word of God. When what we should be doing is aligning ourselves with the word of God and gearing ourselves up for being able to explain to others what it is we believe and being able to accept rejection at that time. Internal thoughts and feelings and their dangerous consequences. Jesus was, was teaching here in this, and we're going to get to it, that it's not just the outward, the outward acts that are wrong. It's the internal thoughts and motivation that he was trying to deal with. That's the big change. It's like the little boy who gets sent to the corner to sit in the chair for a timeout. Timeout. I didn't get timeouts as a kid, but just saying. <laughs> I, I got something, but it wasn't a timeout. Amen. Little boy sitting in the corner in a chair, in a timeout chair, turns to his mother, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Right? And what Jesus is saying is, yeah, you may... You may have the great outward expression, but what I'm concerned about is the heart. I'm concerned about how you are inside. I'm, consider, I'm concerned about what your motivation is. Not accolades and praise and being lifted up and, and looking for people to clap and say how wonderful a person you are. I'm looking to change your heart so that you are motivated by love. So that you're motivated by love for your Savior. And the life that you choose to live following him is a life motivated by love. And the reason you express that in the way you live and the way you reach out to others and the way you try to tell them about a savior that loved them enough to die is because of love. It's internal. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about Religious acts versus the kind of ministry that comes from the heart. The importance of being a testimony to those outside of faith and many other very practical aspects of how to live a successful life following Jesus. You know, Jesus famously said, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. Remember that? (laughs) How many of you don't have to raise your hands on this one, but how many of us struggle with that? Yo, brother, listen, I'm the kind of guy, and I'll, I'll just be very honest. I'll just be, now I'm saying this in front of a man who's like twice my size. Um, I'll give him a black eye on his kneecap. <laughs> but, but man, 
my human feel, I'm, as well, I'm going to be very honest, my humanity, you slap me on one cheek, you better be very thankful that I've got a bad hip and I can't chase you down and stomp you into the ground. But then the side of Jesus kicks in and says, you know what, John? I died for that person. There's something in their life that needs to change. Whether they're a believer who needs to be reconnected with Jesus. Listen, I'm not saying you need to be a doormat. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you need to be, and God help the person who tries to attack my wife, my four children that live with me, and the three that don't, or any of my grandchildren, because that's my responsibility. My job, Jesus says, my job as a Christian now is to take it from people. Because they are acting out from what is inside. And I am supposed to try to earn credibility with them so that I can help them address the main issue. Their issue isn't their anger. Their issue isn't their choice of lifestyle. Their issue isn't their political party. Their issue isn't their politics. Their issue is their heart condition with Jesus Christ. And my responsibility is to live life in such a way and build relationships in such a way that I earn credibility with them to be able to talk with them and share with them what Jesus has done for them, what he wants to do for them, and what can happen in their life if they give themselves fully to him and make him their savior. That's my responsibility. That's why Jesus is saying all these things. Listen, no, you don't have this Christian. As a human being, yes, you have the right to react. You do. Legally, you'll be fine. But our standard as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is far above the law of men. We, we do answer to a higher authority. We answer to Jesus Christ. And that is what Jesus is trying to get us to understand here. Quite, quite frankly, the Sermon on the Mount is the secret to successful Christian living, period. Jesus was setting the bar. If you were to choose to spend a significant amount of your time in your life to study and put into practice the teachings from this one sermon, then you'd be living a powerful life indeed. Your bar would be set. Setting the bar for your walk with Jesus is vital. Setting goals is important. That's what Jesus was doing, I believe, in this first sermon. Setting the bar for us in our lives as followers of his. The first major theme of the sermon is the section that we just read, the Beatitudes. And there is so much in there. You dig deep underneath just the, just the, the, the Pinterest thing or whatever it is that people make a little little uh, banner on the internet and you like it and well, dig deeper than just a, 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 a word picture. And when we do, we'll find that these beatitudes are pretty deep. These beatitudes are more than just uh, a mantra to repeat. The beatitudes really tell us how we as followers of the one true God need to live in this world that is so angry and broken and corrupt. And we're going to dive into them. We're going to start next week. But before we do that, I think it's imperative that we truly understand the teaching about goals as a follower of Jesus and how to set them, how to chase and achieve them. 
See, I don't think it's wrong to set goals. I don't think it's wrong to have a dream as a Christian. Joseph was driven by his dreams, wasn't he? You go into the Old Testament and Joseph, that's how, that's how Joseph raised, was raised to his position of authority. That's how God used uh, Joseph to become the, the one who was able to preserve the line of Israel through the great famine. I think it's great to have a dream for your life. But I think what's so important is that we understand the biblical way of setting goals and dreaming dreams for ourselves, our family, and our church. It's not complicated. It's not deep theology. It's pretty basic. Now, the definition of a goal is the object of someone's intention, a desired result. This morning, I just want to share with you quickly some biblical principles for setting godly goals in your life, in your family, and in your service for the church. The first thing may seem odd to you. It may seem out of place. It may seem like it doesn't fit here and may not, you may not even like the first point. But the first step you must take in setting a godly goal is this. You've got to count the cost. You've got to count the cost. Count the cost. Count the cost, count the cost, count the cost. An important theme of warning that runs through Jesus' teaching and ministry is one of opposition from the world and persecution. Jesus said, listen, church, listen to this, listen to this. Go home and do a study, a word study, a theme study on this one concept. Jesus said, do not be surprised if the world hates you. They hated me first. Find out how many times he said that. Find out, find out, look, read in John chapter 6, verse 66, uh, that passage there where Jesus gave a hard teaching about if you're going to follow me, you have got to consume me and be consumed by me. And it was such a difficult teaching to accept. What happened? Read John, John chapter 6, verse 66, that whole text around there. The Bible says that at that, from that point on, many of his followers turned and walked away because it was going to be too difficult. Jesus says in another, in another passage of scripture, the one who follow, puts his hand to the plow and turns back, what does he say? Anybody, anyone want to finish that verse? Is not fit for the kingdom of God. One guy said, hey, Jesus, I'll follow you. But first, let me go follow. Let me go bury my father. What did Jesus say? Hey, you know what? I'll come there. We'll have a great sermon. We'll have a great service. And you know, hey, I'll come and raise your father from the dead. He could do that. What was Jesus response? Let the dead bury their dead and you come and follow me. (sighs) Hey, man, that's some deep teaching. That's some powerful teaching. That is harsh. And yet Jesus says to us, if you're going to follow me, I'm not interested in halfway. I'm not interested in split loyalty. I'm not interested in in you just dipping your toe in the water. I want you to count the cost. That is why we have discipleship. So we can teach people what it means to follow Jesus. Now listen, I'm not saying that once you accept Christ as your Savior, the first thing you should do is surrender to be a missionary to Africa. That's not what I'm saying. 
I'm saying you need to be able to come to a point in your life where you say, God, I'm all in. I'm going to learn about this faith. I'm going to find out what it means to be a follower, a true follower. I don't want to be a Sunday Christian, Lord. I want to know what you have for me. And I want to live the life. I'm not perfect. Listen, I could tell you that from experience in my own life. I am not perfect. Our two daughters have been with us now for seven weeks. I guarantee you, if you talk to them, they can tell you, my father isn't perfect. I guarantee it. I'd tell you to go talk to my wife, but she'd take up too much time telling you, <laughs> telling you how imperfect I truly am. Okay? Jesus wants us to count the cost. Jesus uses the word offend many times for how the world will feel about you and your faith. The problem is that we as human beings, man, nobody likes to be hated. I don't wake up in the morning saying, geez, who can I anger today? Except maybe today. Because if you're a Buccaneers fan, look at my family. <laughs> we have Rams jerseys all over the place. Nobody likes to be hated or opposed or talked about. Nobody likes to be offensive. We just don't. That's not, that's not how to win friends and influence people, right? But that's part of the package deal as a follower of Jesus. The message of Jesus is offensive to many. God's way is God's way. You either accept it or you turn from it. There's no middle ground. That's what it means to count the cost. Can you follow him under those conditions? Can you follow him and say, like the disciples, when Jesus, when, when all those followers of his turned and walked away in John chapter 6, Jesus turned. You remember what he, what, what he did? He turned to his, the ones that stayed. You remember what he said? Are you going to leave too? What was their response? Lord, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. And that's what, listen, there are so many different things that vie for your attention right now, that vie for your loyalty. And I'm going to be honest, as a human being, there are so many causes in this world today that are valuable for your life, to, that you could give your life to, and it's valuable. But is it what Jesus has called you to do? Political activism is not endorsed by the word of God. Being in politics, doing that as a job, yes. Help being, being in the, uh, helping to create laws and, and things like that. Serving on, in, in your community, on boards and things like that, yes. But forsaking your faith to be a political activist or pursue a career and say, I'll come back to my faith later. I want to provide for my family more than what is really necessary. And I'll come back to my faith when they've graduated from college. And that's not what the Bible says. Jesus said, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I'll make you fish for people. I will use your life to make a difference for my kingdom. Now, I may do that through you being a business owner. I may do that through you running a business for someone else. I may do that for using you to raise a family and raise strong 
solid human beings. I may use you to, I, I may do that by using you in your church to be a pillar of faithfulness and trust who can mentor others in their faith. It may not be you being on the highlight reel of Christianity. You may be a person in the background, but I'm going to use you to accomplish the, the, the purpose of my kingdom. That's what it's about. And he says we've got to count the cost. He teaches this to us again in Luke chapter 14, verses 28 through 30, for he, when he says, For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Jesus gives us a reason why we should count the cost. Because if you, if you walk away, you're going to take other people with you. It's better not to start a job you don't expect to finish than it is to get halfway into it and say, I can't do it anymore, and to walk away and take others down with you. Listen, I, I know what it's like to go through tragedy and struggle in your life. <laughs> I, I don't like to talk about it a lot, but I will this morning. I had a 30-year marriage come to a terrible, terrible end. I didn't want that, and I didn't, I didn't want to, I'll be, I'll be just straight up honest. I didn't want to stay here at this church. I didn't want to stay here. I wanted to go and dig a hole, pull the dirt in. I wanted to lay down in the hole first, and then pull the dirt over in on myself and let my life end. Not that I was suicidal, I just wanted to disappear. It wasn't... I wasn't happy, man. 30 years I invested, gone in the blink of an eye. But I said, God, I know you've got a plan for me. I can't see beyond it right now. This huge cloud of pain and anger and fear and the feeling of rejection, of not being good enough, all of this is blinding me. I can't see. But I do know this, you have promised to be faithful, God. So what I'm going to do is just trust you. <laughs> if you will, if you will give, preserve my life and my integrity, then I will continue on. And he did. And now, I have a wife that I adore. My life is blessed. I have four children that really annoy me, <laughs> but I love with all my heart. My life is blessed. It wasn't fun. It was horrible. Absolutely terrible. Those of you who have had to walk that road know exactly what I'm talking about. Those of you who were children of broken homes know exactly what I'm talking about. But God is faithful. And I sat down and I counted the cost. I lost friends. I lost respect. I lost a lot of things. But you know what I kept? My life, my integrity, and my relationship with Jesus Christ. See, what happens to me is not what's important. 
And that's truly how I feel. What matters to me is whether or not God can use my life and my experiences to bring someone else closer to him and bring them ultimately to a saving knowledge of him and a close walk with Jesus. Listen, man, I've got all of heaven. I've got all of eternity to deal with the bumps and the bruises. And the Bible tells me that in heaven, none of it's going to matter anyway. Because it's all, every tear is going to be wiped away. Doesn't mean that it's easy to continue to walk that road. Because quite honestly, pardon my language, it sucks. But let me tell you, God is faithful. I'm a living, walking, talking example of the, of the fact that if you will count the cost and continue to walk with him and let him heal your wounds. Let him deal with the, with the, the anger. Amen. There are many times I've gone to, gone to God in prayer and said, Lord, it's not fair. You don't understand. This is not fair. God, it's not fair. You know what his response is? I know. Hey, you know what? It wasn't fair for me to be crucified for the sins of all humanity as a perfect creator of the world, of the universe. Yet I did it anyway. So I have to man up and follow. Count the cost. How do you do that? Well, I think once you've counted the cost, I think you need to make sure that you're determined to make progress in your life. I'm going to move forward. I'm going to get beyond it. It's not that I'm going to sweep it under the rug. It's not that I'm going to ignore it. Because I'm going to deal with it as God allows me to take that out of the box and open it up little by little. I'm going to deal with it. We have this whole concept right now that we have to deal with everything right this moment. You don't. Those are distractions that stall you from forward progress. There's nothing wrong with saying, God, he knows you're not ready to deal with it right now. Set it aside and say, I'm going to keep moving forward. Okay? We're going to deal with that as I become strong enough to deal with that. And if you trust God, he'll let you deal with things in their time. Determined to make progress. C.S. Lewis said, there are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind. I would say this as a Christian, satisfaction in mediocrity is mediocre satisfaction. Satisfaction in mediocrity is mediocre satisfaction. For those of you discouraged about your walk with Jesus and you say, I just don't feel like I'm where I should be. Well, that's true of all of us. We could be farther along down the road. There's no doubt about it. We all could have handled things better. We all could have dealt with situations better in our lives. We all could be farther down the road of spirituality than we are right now. But this is where you are. Understand, forward progress of any kind is progress nonetheless. Forward progress is progress. Whether it's one step, one inch, one foot, or a mile. Stop beating yourself up for, for not being where you should be and thank God for you being where you are right now. Forward progress is progress. Stop listening to the voices that say, geez, you should be more mature. You should be able to handle it. Listen, there are things that you're... <laughs> There are things in my life right now that are occurring that I've never been through before. And I, I'm, I'm having to learn how to handle them. I'm older than most of you. 
I don't really care whether people think I should be okay. What I care about is how God is going to heal my heart and work me through these problems. That's what I'm concerned about. Not worried about what they think. Worried about what he knows and he thinks. C.S. Lewis always also said this, isn't it funny how day by day nothing changes, but when you look back, everything is different. Isn't that true? If you look day by day, nothing changes, man, but when you look back, everything's different. Remember that all things happen for God's purpose. All things happen for God's purpose. We're just going to go quickly through these last couple so that we'll finish this and we can start next week on the next message. Second thing I think you need to do is understand God's big picture purpose for your life. God has a big picture purpose for you. Now he's also got the small picture. That's you, your, your walk with him. But God wants to use each and every one of you in some kind of ministry, some way, shape, or form. And if you're here at New Life, guess what? He wants to use you here. You're in the greatest mission field in the United States of America, the most needy missions field of the United States of America. Count that as a badge of honor that God has chosen you to be part of a church that has a passionate desire to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And get busy, get involved. Understand God's big picture for you. That means following his word. God's plan for your life is progressive. As you mature, more will be revealed to you. The principles will be the same, but the responsibility and expectations grow as you do. Matthew 6.33, and guys, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry, I'm jumping through these things so quickly so you can try to keep up. <laughs> Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Rick Warren said, living to create an earthly legacy is a short-sighted goal. We don't live for now. We live for the kingdom. Third thing I think you need to do is have a God-centered goal for your life. Your goal should not be to be rich to be for, for being rich's sake. If God has given you the ability to make money, if God has given you the ability to be successful in business and that brings money in to your household, you need to be, I believe, you need to have that mentality that God has blessed me and given to me so I can give back to his kingdom so that he can give back to me and I can give back to his kingdom. It's the principle of giving living, the cycle of giving living. God gives to you so you can provide for your family, take care of your needs, give to the kingdom. God will give you more. And as he, remember, I mean, we're going to see this, man. We're, uh, the, what, this is what I'm talking about. The, the, the solid, strong teaching of Jesus Christ. He gave talents. And what happened? The, the, the dude that had the 10 talents and, and, increase them. What did God do? He gave him more. He gave him the talents of the guy, the, the cat that just buried it. God gave his talent to the guy that used his abilities. That, whether it's money, whether it's relationships, whatever God has been teaching, anything, whatever God has blessed you with, you give that back to God. God's going to give you more and more and more. As you give to him, he's going to give back to you so you can be more involved, so that you can be more effective. Once again, C.S. Lewis, he's got some great quotes on these lines. You're never too old to set a new goal or to dream a new dream.
How do you have a God-centered goal? Man, you run with determination to reach that goal. Run with determination. God wants to be your part of your goal setting. Let me give you some quick principles, three quick principles of goal setting. As a Christian, your goal should be achievable. Don't set a goal that you have no, well, I can do anything with God. Yeah, but that, God may not want to do what you want to do. Okay? Make sure your goal is achievable. Milk to meat. Make sure those goals are achievable. Getting a doctorate in theology in six months, not achievable. Okay? Second thing, your goal should be practical. What good is it going to do you? How can that be used in the kingdom of God? Your goal should be practical. And your goal, your dream and your goal must be biblical. A goal that isn't founded on Bible principles is selfish and self-determined. These kinds of goals will only be reached by your own efforts and will, not, will only bring temporary success and satisfaction. And I think the most important thing we have to do is this. If you are going to have a goal, a God-centered goal for your life, we've touched on it several times here already this morning. I mean, you've got to make a commitment to follow Jesus. You've got to make a commitment to follow Jesus. Not me. Listen, I, I, don't follow me. I'm telling you right now, if you put your faith in me, in John Chase, I'm going to disappoint you. I'm like the world's leader in disappointments. Okay? Seriously, man. I'm going to disappoint you. I'm just, you want to turn me into a Patriots fan? Move along. It's not going to happen. I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to disappoint you. It's not going to happen. You want a perfect pastor? Move along. It's, I'm going to disappoint you. Don't put your faith in me. Don't put me up on that pedestal and say, if I could only be like him. No. Be like him. Jesus says, if I am lifted up, if I am lifted up, if I am lifted up, I will draw people to myself. I will use you to get the job done. I'll use you to make the connections. But the first thing I need from you is a commitment, a commitment to follow me. That begins with accepting him as your personal savior. What do I mean by that? Listen, I'm, I, we lose people at this part. When I say, you got to admit that you're a sinner. I'm not calling you a horrible person. I'm not saying you're the scum of the earth. I'm saying you're not perfect. And imperfection cannot stand in the presence of a perfect God. We're not perfect. We're sinners. That sin in our life is instantly a problem with our relationship with God. Because we are not perfect. We can't stand in the presence of a holy God. Then we are separated from God. And there's a judgment on sin. The judgment on sin is separation from God eternally in a place called hell. We don't like that. In fact, there's a movement in the church nowadays to totally change the teaching of hell and say that hell doesn't exist. It does exist. Jesus himself said it does. 
But he didn't leave us hopeless. And that is a hopeless thought. But he didn't leave us hopeless, man. He said, listen, I know your condition. I know your situation. I'm going to fix it. Jesus came down to earth as a baby. He lived. He taught. He ministered. He healed for 33 years. And then his time came. And he willingly gave his life on the cross. He went through the pain. He went through the torture. He went through the agony for you and for me. Because you can't pay the price for your sin and still enjoy the freedom that it gives because what was required was a blood sacrifice to satisfy a holy God. Jesus was the perfect lamb. He died on the cross to pay the price for your sins. And that's awesome. And people say, well, God, Jesus died and the sins of the world are forgiven. Yes, but there's one final step that you must take. And that step is making a commitment to Jesus Christ and saying, I need you to be my savior. And mentally, spiritually, saying, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I cannot be good enough to get myself to heaven. I know, Jesus, that you died on the cross to pay for my sins. I accept all that. And I ask you to give me your gift of eternal life and save me. It's humbling yourself and saying, I need Jesus to forgive my sins because I can't be good enough to do it on my own. The Bible says if you'll do that, Jesus will give you the gift of eternal life. He'll come into your heart and save you, forgive all your sins, and now you will be his child. If you've already accepted Jesus as your savior, the Bible says the first big commitment you must make is following him in obedient, obedient baptism. Well, I was baptized as a baby. That's not the biblical way, man. Biblical way is to accept Jesus Christ as your savior and then make a public statement of your faith in him by being baptized. Join a local church and get connected. Well, I don't believe in church membership. Okay. All right. I can't make a great argument that the Bible teaches that you have to go forward and join a church, but that's the way we do it. <laughs> that's the way we do it. It is you making a commitment to going beyond what you really care about, what you really think, and the argument that you're making, and saying, I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to join a local church, and then get involved in service at your church, your church. This is not my church, it's your church. Get involved in service here at New Life. Active, effective, and fruitful service is going to be a theme that runs throughout these teachings, the teachings of Jesus. That's what's expected of his followers. Let me close with 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, talking about commitment. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run, I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself may not be disqualified. I guess we could sum it all up by saying this. Make sure you're doing the things in your life, God's will and God's way. That's the secret to success. And that's the secret to happiness. And we are going to dig into this sermon and find out more of what Jesus has to say. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer?
Right now, while every head is bowed, every eye is closed, nobody's looking around. I know we covered a lot of ground this morning and we went through it lightning fast. I get that. I understand that. But there's two questions I want to ask and nobody's looking around. It's just you and me and God's looking on, obviously. But I wonder this morning if you would be very honest and say, you know, Pastor John, you, you said something that I, I'm not quite sure about. You talked about it and, and I realized that that's where I'm at. And I've never accepted Jesus Christ as my personal savior. I've never, I cannot point to a time in my life where I said, I'm, I'm a, a sinner and I need Jesus to forgive my sins and give me eternal life. And I wonder if there's anybody here that would raise their hand and say, Pastor John, that's me. That's where I'm at right now. Thank you. Thank you for that honesty. Thank you. Anybody else? That's exactly where I'm at. Love to chat with you about that after service. And I wonder, Christian, I know, I mean, I know we went through this fast. I really, I know that. But I think there's some recurring themes that maybe it may have been able to, to grip you and, and, and get your heart. And I wonder if you could say, hey, Pastor John, please pray for me. Not that I'm making a commitment right now, not anything like that, but pray for me that while we go through this series, I will see and hear and know for sure what God is trying to say to me because I want to be more committed. Anybody? Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for the, all those honest hands. I, and I appreciate it so much. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you. So, and I commit to you that I will be praying for you. And when I'm putting, when I'm allowing the Holy spirit to speak to my heart and preparing these sermons, I'll have you in mind. I promise that father, I thank you so much for the privilege of being back here today. Lord, this is uh, it's such, a, such a different time, Lord, such a crazy time. And yet we have people who are so committed, they still want to serve you. And God, I thank you for the privilege of being able to be here in a church and opening your word. Lord, you know the hands that were raised, those who, who are in need. God, I pray that you will meet each one of them at their need. God, I pray that you will uh, help each one of them, each one of us, to pursue you. And God, may we all have open hearts and open spirits and open minds to what you have to say to us, Lord. As we go from this place today, may we go forward as worshipers, sharing the love and the life that you've called us to with others. And God, would you use us and make us effective and fruitful for your kingdom. We ask all these things, Lord, in your precious holy name. Amen.